Pastor Stuart Briscoe tells the story of a friend who, when he was a little boy, often used an old fruit tree to escape from his second-story bedroom window, especially when his father was about to punish him. Well, it seems that one day the father announced that he was going to cut down that old tree. And the reason for doing so is because it had not borne fruit in many, many years. Well, the little boy realized that his means of escape would soon be gone. He was a rather resourceful fellow, and so that night, he, along with his friends, purchased a bushel of apples. And under the cover of darkness, they tied the fruit to the unproductive branches. Next morning, the father went out with his chainsaw in hand to cut down the tree, and he couldn't believe his eyes. Excitedly, he shouted for his wife to come out, and hearing the almost panic in his voice, she came running out, and the two of them just stood there in utter amazement, looking at a tree that for years had been fruitless and was now full of apples. Finally, the husband spoke, and he said, Mary, I can't believe my eyes. That old fruit tree that was barren for years is now covered with apples. And the two continued to look on in amazement. And then the husband spoke to his wife and he said, Honey, it's truly a miracle because it was a pear tree. (laughs) Now that story exemplifies for some the supernatural miracle I think that takes place when the new birth occurs. Because God's able to take a, a barren, ravaged, sinful life and change it miraculously into something that's fruitful and productive. People who before Christ were unloving are turned into loving people. They're changed from someone who is impatient to someone who is patient as a father, husband, son, or a wife, mother, and daughter. From someone who was covetous and greedy to someone who's now content and generous. From someone who is living an immoral life, enslaved to lust and sin, to living a life of purity and holiness in accordance with God's Word. And when you come to the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians, that's, well, that's exactly what Paul is talking about. What he tells us here in Galatians chapter 5 is that change is possible. A life that was sterile and barren and fruitless can be turned into something that's meaningful and productive. Last week I mentioned again that Paul is responding in the book of Galatians to false teachers who had come into the church that he had planted there in the region of Galatia, and they came in and they began to undermine the message of Paul. They challenged him as an apostle. They questioned his credentials and his motive. And at issue was simply the question, how is a man or woman made right with God? And then, how is that person to live a Christian life? Where he's defeating sin and living a life of victory. Well, the false teachers came in and they said that a man is made right with God through human efforts. It's not by faith alone in Christ alone. It's by works. And what Paul has done in the previous chapters of this book, and we've gone through it very methodically and very carefully, and hopefully you've 
captured the message, but he's very effectively and convincingly answered that charge by Scripture as well as their experience. And he said that we are justified before God, we're declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And when you come to the fifth chapter, he's expanding on that by saying that victorious Christian living or sanctification comes by faith as well. Justification and sanctification are intertwined one with the other. And we are to live daily in dependence on the Holy Spirit. I've mentioned it before, but it bears repeating. Foundational to Christianity, our walk before God, is that legalism. Rules and regulations, cans and cannot, do's and don'ts. Cannot justify a man before God, nor can they restrain the flesh, the old sin nature. And the reason for that is because it doesn't impact the heart. To be sanctified before God, you need to live by and in the power of the Spirit. Paul says that, and that alone will defeat the desires of the flesh. And the challenge he mentions again in chapter 5 is simply this. Sin is not dead in the life of the Christian. The old sin nature remains active. There's an ongoing conflict. There's a never-ending battle taking place, even in the most mature and pious of Christians. We are, in the words of the theologians, simultaneously righteous and sinful at the same time. We have a new nature. We're new creations in Christ. And we've been created for good works, but that new nature is still imprisoned in our remaining humanness. And because that's true, sadly, there are some Christians who allow sin to dominate their life. But Paul says it doesn't have to. You as a Christian here this morning have been joined to Christ and you can have victory over sin. In fact, look at verse 16 again at Galatians 5. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Be indwelt by the Spirit. Be empowered by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says the two are in conflict with each other. And then he goes on and he says that the acts of the flesh are are very clear. They're very evident. And he says those who have as their habitual lifestyle behavior such as sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, those who have that as their habitual lifestyle, I think we can justifiably question whether or not they're believers. It's not talking about an occasional lapse into these things. Sadly, every, every Christian's done some of those things, perhaps more than once. But if that is your lifestyle here this morning, you need to look deep within and ask yourself whether or not you're truly a Christian. 
And then he goes on and he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, and so on. What he does in verses 22 and following is he paints a beautiful picture of what a Christ-like person looks like, acts like, and feels like. Paul, in a very real sense, is setting before us two options as to how you and I can live. We are simultaneously righteous and sinful at the same time. Both natures are within us. And we have now before us the option of either living enslaved to sin and the flesh, or rather living by the virtues of the Spirit. Last week we mentioned that the only person who can present these qualities in your life, the only one who can produce these great virtues in believers, is the indwelling Spirit of God. Foundational to what makes a Christian a Christian is the indwelling presence of God. And it takes the Spirit of God residing within someone to produce the character qualities of Christ as they're given here. Second thing we noticed is that these things are in the singular. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And there's an obvious reason for that, because when you're operating by the Spirit, it comes as a package deal. All of these virtues that are mentioned here, all nine, are interconnected one with the other. You don't have the option to say, you know what, I'm really, my strength is kindness, but, but that self-control, man, I, I, that, that's just not me. No, you can't do that. When a person is walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, there will be recognizable evidence that God is at work in his or her life. The proof of true Christianity is habitual, daily, ongoing manifestation of fruit in their life. Additionally, we went on and said that when these virtues, while these virtues should mark every believer from the moment of salvation, they are most lovingly and evidently evident in those who have walked with the Lord the longest. And finally, we suggested that this fruit is displayed in the context of a person's relationship with others. I'm going to have to move ahead one. I have a hard time reading that from the back. It's a little small. I went to the eye doctor the other day. No new prescription, so we haven't changed in a year. But it's still just a little on the small side back there. We said that as you look at these nine virtues, they relate, first of all, Godward, manward, and then selfward. We said that as far as our relationship with God, there'll be love, joy, and peace as we relate to others. There'll be patience, kindness, and goodness. And finally, as they relate to ourselves, there will be the evidence of faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So these are Godward, manward, and finally, selfward. And that's the key. Last week, we talked about those that are Godward. We said that love is that supernatural ability where you have as the policy of your life that you're going to place the well-being of others ahead of yourself. We said that when you do that, there will be joy in your life. And when you allow the third virtue to work in your life, you'll have that tranquility of the soul where you have peace. Now, the next three relate to how you and I are going to get along with others.
And he says that the way you and I are going to get along with others is that we are going to demonstrate patience. The NIV says forbearance. It's the same thought. And what's interesting is that in the Greek language, there are a number of words that are used for patience. And the word that's used for patience here is talking about getting along with people who might otherwise make you angry. It's not talking about being patient under a trial. That's a different word that's used. This is a patience that pushes anger far away. A spirit-filled person is someone who keeps outbursts of anger at a distance. They're slow to anger. It's a restraint that does not retaliate when a wrong's been done against you. When someone said something negative or untrue about you. If you are walking in the Spirit, your anger is kept in check. On a practical level, that means when someone cuts you off in traffic on I-15, you don't blow a gasket. When someone is purposefully rude to you at the marketplace, you say nothing. You know, one of the things that I have observed is that I've met people who say things like, well, you know, I'm just by nature an impatient person. You don't understand, Pastor. I, I'm just an irritable person. That's the way God made me. That's part of my makeup. It's who I am. Look up at the page just for a moment at verse 19. Galatians 5. Did you observe that fits of rage or outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, and factions are all mentioned right alongside sexual immorality, idolatry, witchcraft, drunkenness? Listen, an angry temper, an unpleasant disposition, a short fuse, having Bobby Knight as your role model, is a clear evidence that that person is not under the control of the Spirit. I want you to listen to what it says in Numbers 14, 18. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. And I love this, forgiving iniquity and transgression. If you want to know what this patience is, it's the kind of person who in response to an offense is slow to anger. They're full of grace. They're forgiving. It's a virtue closely related to forgiveness. And you know what Jesus said regarding us? He said that you and I are to forgive 70 times 7, 70 times a day. We're called to forgive our enemies. Someone said, and I think he's spot on, that we are never more like God than when we forgive and love our enemies. Additionally, Jesus said, if we don't forgive, we won't be forgiven. You and I as Christians are to be marked by loving kindness, grace, and an eagerness to forgive. Psalm 86 
15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. God is patient with sinful people. A perfect example of that would would be God's patience. Talked about in 1 Peter 3.20 where God says he exhibited patience in the days of Noah. How patient was God? Well, he waited 120 years while the ark was being built and Noah was out there preaching for people to repent and they refused. And it was only after 120 years of God patiently waiting that God brought the judgment of the flood. James 5, 7-10 through 10 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. And then he says this, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I want you to see this firsthand, so if you would, Turn to your right in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's worth our time in turning. It's six books over. No more than 15 pages, at least in my Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want us to read some verses here that I think are incredibly instructive. 1 Timothy 1. Let's begin reading with verse 12. Paul writes, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience. I love that. His immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And then he bursts forth in a doxology of praise and he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See what Paul is saying here? You see, and I wasn't just a a legalistic Pharisee, a religious hypocrite. He says, I was a persecutor and a violent man. I killed Christians. In the first century, before I came to know Christ, he said, I was out there persecuting and killing Christians. And he says, I am a perfect demonstration of God's patience. Peter says, the Lord is not slow about his promises, but is patient. You know why? Not wishing for any to perish. If you've ever wondered why the Lord has delayed his coming, it's not because he forgot his promise about coming. 
It's because he's slow to anger. He's not willing that any should perish. It's because he's by nature patient. And he's merciful and gracious and eager to forgive. Have you ever stopped to think if God were not patient, none of us would ever be saved? If God had no patience for sin, can you imagine what would happen to all of us? Friend, we'd die in our womb, our mother's womb, because we're conceived as sinners. If God had no patience, certainly after we committed our first overt act of sin, God would destroy us. And the very fact that we're, we're, we're still alive and sucking air is a testimony to the patience of God. We're to be patient. Listen to Ephesians 4, 1 through 2. It says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. I love that. And that's what patience is. It's showing tolerance for one another. Colossians 3.12 says this, So as those who have been called, so, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then it says this regarding what patience is. He says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever hasn't complained against you, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So we're not vengeful. We're not bitter. We're not trying to get back at people who may have wronged us. We're not hostile. We're not angry. We keep our anger far, far away from us. And we're commanded to exhibit a gracious, loving, tolerant, patient spirit. You know, and it struck me as interesting, even the Lord says that we preachers are supposed to be patient. Specifically. You know, I don't know why. I, I, I know I've read this probably a hundred times, if not more. I've committed it to memory. But it struck me as significant this past week as I was studying this. It says in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word with great patience. Isn't that interesting? I'm to preach and be patient with people who refuse to apply the truth to their life. Believe me, it is ever so frustrating that some people just make poor choice after poor choice after poor choice after they've heard God's word again and again and again. And by the way, it's not just preachers who are to exhibit patience. It's parents in the instruction of their children. It's grandparents who try to teach their grandchildren how to snow ski. <sighs> Not good. Not good. It's being patient when, you, when you've said to your kids, you know, I told you that a thousand times. How many times do I have to tell you not to do that? 
You know what the simplest command is? It's found in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It says, be patient with everyone. And I suppose we could add, at all times and under all circumstances, because the next verse says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. You know, patience is primarily a work of the Spirit of God in your life and mine. And if you don't have patience with people, you're not manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. You're not being Christ-like. Let me be practical here. Patience is the boss who could fire the new employee for not picking things up as quickly as he should but chooses to give that person more time, knowing that he desperately needs that job. Patience is the father who promises to help his daughter learn how to ride a bike. And after three hours of struggling, still sticks with it and says, let's try one more time. Patience is choosing not to sue or evict or break up or hang up, even though you have every right to. Patience is having the right to do the other person in, but saying no. You know, sometimes our impatience backfires, and we have unintended consequences. I love the story of the new CEO who was determined to rid his company of all the slackers. He knew it was time for a shakeup at the company, and so on a tour of the facilities, He noticed a guy leaning against a wall. The room was full of co-workers, and he wanted to let them know that he meant new business. He was the new sheriff on the block. And so he walked up to the guy leaning against the wall, and he said, How much money do you make a week? A little surprised, the young man looked at him and said, I make $400 a week. Why? CEO whipped out his wallet, gave the guy $1,600 in cash and screamed, here's four weeks' pay, now get out of here and don't come back. CEO felt pretty good about himself, and he looked around the room, and he says, does anybody know what that bloody slacker did here? From across the room came a voice that said, that was the pizza delivery guy from Domino's. <laughs> Got to be patient. Got to be patient. It's a great way to lose 1600 bucks. Well, friend, where does this patience come from? Well, it comes from where all the fruit of the Spirit comes from. It comes from the Spirit of God. Paul said in Colossians 1, 9 through 12, he said, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled By the Spirit of God, with all patience, giving thanks to the Father. Christ is the example of this patience, and the Holy Spirit is the dispenser of patience. You want to know what ruins relationships faster than anything? A lack of patience that manifests itself in a lack of forgiveness. And we all need to be more forgiving. 
I want to close this morning by relating a story that comes from the life of Pastor Jim Simbala, who's the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City. In his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, he speaks of an occasion when he desperately needed God's help. But he didn't just need God's help, he also needed God's patience. Because his daughter Chrissy, although she had grown up in a solid Christian home, began living a reckless life. And for two and a half years, she pulled away from her parents and from God. Pastor Simbala writes in his book, As the situation grew more serious, I tried everything. I begged, I pleaded, I scolded, I argued. I tried to control her with money. Looking back, I recognized the foolishness of my actions. Nothing worked. She just hardened more and more. And this is the fear that every father has with regards to his daughter. Her boyfriend was everything we did not want for our child. He says in the book that his wife, Carol, wondered if they should just leave the ministry there in New York. She was fearful that the other children would head down the same path that Chrissy was going. And he spoke with a a good minister friend of his about the problem. And this godly pastor said, Jim, I love you and your wife, but the truth of the matter is, Chrissy's going to do what Chrissy's going to do. You don't really have much choice now that she's 18. She's determined. You're going to have to accept whatever she decides. So the only thing that Jim and Carol could do was pray and to try to show Chrissy love and patience. In the book, Jim relates how on a Tuesday night at Jim's church during a prayer service, a member of the congregation asked if the church could stop everything right there and just pray for Chrissy. Jim, as pastors often do, felt a little awkward asking for prayer for his own needs because there were so many needs in the congregation. But nevertheless, he and his wife were desperate. And so that night, the church prayed sincerely, and Jim felt something happen. He had an assurance in his heart. And in the book, Jim writes, 32 hours later, on Thursday morning, as I was shaving, Carol suddenly burst through the door, her eyes wide. Go downstairs, she blurted. Chrissy's here. Chrissy's here. Yes, go down. But Carol, I just go down, she urged. It's you she wants to see. I wiped off the shaving foam and headed down the stairs, my heart pounding. As I came around the corner, I saw my daughter on the kitchen floor, rocking on her hands and knees, sobbing. Cautiously, I spoke her name, Chrissy. She grabbed my pant leg and began pouring out her anguish. Daddy, Daddy, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against myself. I've sinned against you and Mommy. Please forgive me. Jim Wright's tears clouded my vision. I pulled her up from the floor and held her close as we cried together. Suddenly she drew back. Daddy, she said with a start, 
Who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? Her voice was like that of a cross-examining attorney. What do you mean, Chrissy? On Tuesday night, Daddy, who was praying for me? I didn't say anything, so she continued. In the middle of the night, God woke me and showed me I was heading toward this abyss. There was no bottom to it. It scared me to death. I was so frightened. I realized how hard I've been, how wrong, how rebellious. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept me from sliding any farther as he said, I still love you. Daddy, tell me the truth. Who was praying for me Tuesday night? I looked into her bloodshot eyes and once again, I recognized the daughter we had raised. You know, Chrissy changed. She attended college. She prepared for the ministry. She married an outstanding young man who became a pastor, just like his father-in-law. You want to know what changed Chrissy? A mom and a dad and a church family that earnestly prayed and exercised great patience for a prodigal. We all have them in our lives. We all are going through that nightmare. Maybe a son or a daughter, grandchild, a dear friend who's just gone off the deep end. You know what you need? You need the fruit of the Spirit of patience. That supernatural patience that will keep trusting, keep praying, keeping believing, and exercising great cool and control. We all have them in our lives. And we all need to, by God's power and enablement, develop a deepening patience. And it's something that takes time, but it can grow and it can increase because we all need as much patience as we can get. Let's pray. Father, thank you for meeting with us this morning. Thank you that you always do when we gather here together as your people in your name. Thank you for powerfully revealing to us through your word the need for patience. Thank you for the fellowship, the encouragement, the joy, the blessing, the conviction, the reminders that we all need from this passage. And it's so incredibly important that as we leave here that we, we make it a point to manifest these virtues for our own usefulness, for our own fruitfulness, for the sake of your glory. And help us to realize that your glory is at stake in regards to the life that you and I live. 
And so we pray that we would be dependent upon you. Lord, we pray for those who might be here who do not know Christ as their Savior, who have yet to believe in him. We pray that they would come to an end of themselves, that they would realize the full weight of sin and the dread of an eternal hell that awaits them. And so we pray that in this hour, you would open the hearts and minds and ears of people who are here without Christ. May they find the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of eternal life that's found in Jesus Christ. And may they bow the knee to him. Thank you that you are righteous, that you are loving, and that you are patient with sinners. And we pray towards that end, in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.